I don't usually have sermon titles. But the title of this sermon is, I was talking about you, not to you. We see this uh, fourth book of the Pentateuch, these first five books of the Bible, and it's named Numbers. To be honest, it's a lame name. The Hebrew name for this book is actually In the Wilderness. That's a better name. Because Numbers, In the Wilderness, is the story of the people of God in the wilderness. They are at Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is where important things happen, right? The Ten Commandments, the covenant gets made, and they are instructed to go from Mount Sinai to the land that God has promised them. It's, and, and they know, and, and we all know now, that it should take about two weeks, and they should get there. You know, as long as nothing goes wrong. Well, some things go wrong. There are some complications. You know, the conditions are fairly difficult because it's a desert and water and food. It's hard to come by. The lands uh, to which they are heading seem to be impassable. They're already inhabited. There's some conflict as they come across them. And in all this hardship, they complain a lot. They just keep complaining. Let me summarize for you the characterization of the complaint. It goes something like this. Moses, why did you and this God rescue us, rescue us, quote unquote, from Egypt to put us in this crap? We would rather die slaves than live in this desert. That's basically what half of the book of Numbers is, it says. Okay. And in the midst of their complaining, God declares that this two-week journey will now be 40 years long. In the midst of this claiming, of this um, complaining, God declares not only will it be 40 years long, but the oldest generation among you will not see the land that I am sending you to. Miriam, prophetess of the Lord, dies. Aaron, prophet of the Lord, disqualifies himself. Moses, prophet of God, disqualifies himself. None of them see the promised land. None of them. And so by the time we get to Numbers 22, it's a hot mess. The people of God have been complaining. They've been walking. They've been in some battles. It is a hot mess. They are still, they are still walking, which is amazing. But who among us is to say if they really believe that Jehovah's any good? They don't talk like it, certainly. And so we get to this interaction in Numbers 22, 23, and 24. And this morning, Dora wonderfully read for us chapters 23 and 24. And this is sort of a conversation that, like I said, is about the people of God. But it is not to them. They never know, basically, that this whole interaction happens. But it just kind of happens, kind of literally, if you notice, above them. <laughs> so we've got three characters this morning. We've got Balak. Balak is the king of Moab. And the king of Moab and the tribes of Midian are looking on as the people of God are walking. And they don't know that the people of God are basically serial 
tra uh, traumatized complainers. They just see them walking, and they're like, oh, my God, they're coming, they're coming, they're coming. If they only know how disorganized they were, they might not have been as worried. But they see them coming, and they're like, oh, my God, they're coming. What's going to happen to us? And so Balak knows uh, this priest, this priest named Balaam, okay? And Balaam is sort of like a mercenary priest. You call Balaam when you want your enemies to be cursed, and you want their gods to be cursed. And then Balaam will do it, and then you'll have victory. That's literally what Balaam's job is, right? So they're like, okay, we'll call Balaam. It's okay. Balaam will take care of this for us, okay? So they call Balaam. They literally call means send people, like a two-day's journey. Just want to make sure that we contextualize call. Um, they send these people to Balaam in Numbers chapter 22. There's a lot of interactions, but essentially Balaam is first like, oh, I tried to curse uh, uh, the, the people of God, but, but their God said that they're blessed, so you can just go back home. And then Balak's like, no, 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 go back again with money. <laughs> And though they come back, and eventually after some strange interactions, Balaam agrees to come with these men to talk to um, Balak himself, okay? It is interesting to me, and we will talk more about this later, that as we go through this story, the Israelites are absent. They're not here. They're not, the, 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 the complaining that's happening below is, is essentially, it's quieted by this interaction that we have here. So like I said, Balaam eventually decides to go with these men, um, and, and, and Balak is like, okay, great. And there's this pattern. I don't know if you observed it. So there's these three things. It kind of happens three times, right? So first, Balak's like, okay, come with me to this high place, which is kind of like king language for come and see all that I rule. Isn't it awesome? And also, it's come and see the people down there that we're cursing. They're right down there, right? So then, Balaam instructs Balak to build an altar with, like, super expensive animals. It's kind of like a, a, like a bribe toward God, okay? It's like, okay, you're going to grab seven rams. <laughs> rams are huge. <laughs> like... You know, you just these huge animals. We're going to sacrifice one on this entirely burnt offering, which is meant to be very, very special. And then Balaam's like, okay, you do the sacrifice. I'm going to go over there. I'm going to go talk to Jehovah, and we'll see what happens. Notice that Balaam never makes any promises to him. Balaam is never like, oh, yeah, I got this. Remember, in Numbers 22, God has already made it clear to Balaam you can't curse these people. Balaam has already sent that word back to Balak. He already knows this might be hard. But Balak is confident. He's, he's, he's just so confident. Some would say, you know, poisoned by the arrogance that comes with being sort of a baby empire. But, you know, it is what it is. He's confident. So then Balaam comes back. And I only gave you the first address that he made because I didn't want to give you the, like, flowing poetry that just kept un unfolding. Because literally, with every time that Balaam came back, 
it was more of an effusive poem of praise to God and to God's people. Just more like, no, no, they are blessed. Here's what God's plans are. And how does that make Balak feel? Well, he's mad. You notice that by the end of the third time, he's pounding his fists. He's very upset. He's like, I brought you here to curse the people. Why won't you do what I said? And you notice that Balaam also responds to that the same way. I told you that I would tell you what Jehovah told me to say. I, I can only tell you what Jehovah told me. What's interesting in this is that in the third and fourth times this happens, the, the effusive statements of praise that come out of Balaam's mouth are because the spirit of God falls on him. So the first two times, it's just sort of like, okay, look, I told you, you, you brought me here to curse them. They are blessed. It was like sort of a rote speech that he kind of came up with. But the third and fourth times are literally prophetic utterances. They are effusive in how good Jehovah is. And the fourth one basically says Moab's going down. <laughs> and it's interesting because after that one's done, they just both part ways. Okay, thanks, bye. At this point, you may be, and I think appropriately wondering, where are you going with this? What is this weird story? It's a good question. Like I said, this is an interaction between creator God, Balaam, a mercenary priest that has no loyalty to God whatsoever, and Balak, who is a king who wants to achieve a certain purpose. And I will say here and now that I think that Balak's purpose that he's trying to achieve is normal, okay? See, Balak is a king that simply wants to still exist, okay? And he is noticing the people of God marching through. Again, he doesn't really know what's happening. He just sees that they just keep coming, and people just keep being defeated as they keep coming. And so as a king whose responsibility is to care for his people, he's like, how do we survive? It's a very normal question. I appreciate this question on Balak's part. In the midst of this conversation, as I noted several times, the Israelites are not present. The wilderness wandering people of God are down below, stuck in cycles of trauma. They are stuck in so much fragility and uncertainty. Their leaders have been told that they will not reach the promised land. The older generation has been told, only your children will know what my promises really look like. There is scarcity and there is fear for decades, if not generations. Meanwhile, up above, a mercenary prophet with no loyalty whatsoever to Yahweh is entirely convinced 
that God's people and that Yahweh is on the path toward peace and justice. God is completely confident about God's people and their destiny. It is amazing to me, this juxtaposition. The people of God, entirely unsure of where to go and how to be and what to do, arguing and complaining, literally, there are scenes in Numbers where people, like, basically try to set up an alternate kingdom and kick out Moses in front of Moses. They're, like, electing a leader while he's still there. That's what's going on with the people of God. Meanwhile, you have these scenes over here of a prophet, of a priest who knows nothing except what God tells him, entirely confident that this people of God and that their God are in a pursuit of peace and justice that is in some ways inevitable. Balaam is essentially announcing the promises of God for God's people and for all creation, while God's people are entirely unsure that their God is good at all. As a guest of this text, I cannot help but feel a sense of wonder and curiosity. And here's why. Because it amazes me that this priest from another, com- from another community, from another world even, seems to understand very clearly what God is like. Seems to understand very clearly what the people of God are meant to do and meant to be. It makes me wonder how God does this. It makes me wonder if God reveals God's selves to people who aren't in our community in a way that creates the conditions for God's peaceable kingdom. In a way that creates the conditions for all of creation to flourish and thrive. And now here's the point where I tell you that I have been a fool. Maybe you relate to this. I know that I have been a person who has acted on this impulse and has been trained in this impulse to minimize the voices of certain people and communities that I have been told are a bad influence. Who I have been told are compromising the gospel. Does it sound familiar to anyone? Take what they say with a grain of salt, they say. The reasons for this could be complex, but actually I don't think so. I'm going to name for you three that this happens, that, that, that reasons why this might happen. The first is that when you hear these priests and prophets, sometimes their identities are out of bounds. You know, they're not white male, cisgender, respectable, evangelical-ish identities. 
are out of bounds. Sometimes we hear these people, but their ideas and ideologies are too extreme. You know, reconciliation is good enough, but reparations, ooh. Oh, that's, 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 that's too extreme. You know, let's, let's talk together and, 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 you know, figure out how we solve this problem together. But, oh, people just laying down resources and giving up privilege, oh, that's too much. Sometimes their attitudes aren't welcoming and unifying. You know, because white supremacy is afraid of the anger of people of color and queer folks as it is energy that fiercely fights against their own oppression and enslavement. You know, so when these, you know, people with out-of-bound identities and extreme ideologies and unwelcoming attitudes come and maybe sort of, kind of, are living in a way that reminds us of God's goodness, well, what do we do? Do we just ignore them? Do we take what they say with a grain of salt? Well, having lived in this world, in this reality for a long time, I can say that as I read this text, I got sad. Because it made me feel like I spent decades of my life ignoring people I should have followed. It made me realize that I spent years of my life uh, avoiding communities I should have run toward. It made me realize that I had spent maybe much of my life shutting out the voices in my own history that I should have been listening to. You see, this story with Balaam helps me to remember that it has been the priests and prophets on the outside, quote unquote, that have led me to a more expansive and living faith. I'm gonna give you some examples. Maybe you resonate with these examples. There are two broad examples and then there's two that are very specific. One of the broad examples I think about is the way that indigenous communities have done this for me. Specifically, I think about Randy Woodley, Dr. Randy Woodley, who um, in the book Shalom in the Community of Creation talks about something called the Harmony Way. And as he talks about the Harmony Way, he talks about the way that as he did research, sort of talking to and conversing with a bunch of tribes, at least in North America, there's all of them have a story and a way of being that reminded him of what shalom looks like in scripture. The names were different. The stories were a little bit different, but the theme was all the same. The unifying love and care of all things in one circle, in one family. The maintenance of that circle for the good of all. Another example I think about is this. You know, I can remember in the 2010s, you know, that decade long ago, 
And I can remember as justice movements are unfolding very quickly in front of our eyes, I can remember being a part of various communities that are, again, seeing these movements rise up and these leaders rise up. And they're sort of sitting back at a bit of a distance wondering, how do we participate? Right? They're calling for reparations. They're calling for defunding of hyper-militarized public safety. They're calling for the accountability when it comes to the murders of BIPOC folks and queer folks. And eventually these communities that I were a part of, that I was a part of, settled on the performance of a kind of support, along with the maintenance of a good amount of distance. Right? They wanted the signs. They wanted the yard signs. So they got all the yard signs, and they put them up. They wanted to be anonymous at a rally. So they went to a rally. And then when you ask, okay, so can we use your house to house some people in the movement while we figure out what to do? Uh, I don't know. Would you come and help bail some people out of jail? You know, this Moms for Housing thing is pretty revolutionary. Would you help to support and lift up these voices of these black women while they understand and come to know that they deserve a place to live? Uh, Well, you know, somebody owns the house already. It makes me wonder if these liberal and conservative Christians that I was around, myself included, had paused and asked how Creator was already moving to disclose and reveal an ever-expanding vision of justice and right-making, if we might have participated differently. Perhaps they would have seen that the moms for housing were the prophets. Perhaps they would have seen that the teenagers in Ferguson on the streets were the priests. I'll say it again. I wonder how God has revealed God's self to the people on the outside in a way that continues to create the conditions for God's peaceable kingdom the conditions for all of us to thrive and flourish. I want to close this morning by telling you personally that as I have come out of that orientation, as I have come out of that orientation of suspicion, if you will, there are ways that even when I think about the last four years here at Bethel Community, there are people some of you know and some of you don't know, who have been prophet and priest, just like Balaam. And I feel like this story has been very encouraging to me because in some sense, the people of God in this time have no idea that Balaam and Balak are having this conversation. But we do. So I want to make sure that I say the names of these people I'm thinking of while they are alive so that you know that they exist, right? There is a person who is at our church building regularly. Her name, she'll tell you her name is Mo. Um, 
she doesn't often introduce herself as Moira, I don't think. Is that right, Tom? Yeah. Her name's Mo. And Mo is on the board of the food pantry. And Mo is here, you know, most days. And I, I, when I have the opportunity to talk to Mo, I feel like I am going to church. And it's not because Mo and I have deep spiritual conversations about theology and all this other stuff. No, it's because I get the energy from Mo that what the peaceable kingdom looks like is the end of homelessness. Period. Full stop. That what we're doing here, where we have a food pantry here, is triage work. While we wait for the energy of the people to arise and the spirit of the Lord to bring about the miracle, which is housing. When I talk to Mo, I am re-energized because I know that the pursuit of the end of homelessness is what it means for at least me to be Christian. And I learned that from Mo, who would call herself an apostate Jew. I get this energy from Dr. Hoyfe Mock, who is a director of sustainability in the city of San Leandro. And Dr. Mock is someone that we have worked with uh, extensively in talking about this work of resilience. And every time Dr. Mock describes what re resilience looks like, I'm like, oh, this is, you mean to like care for creation? That's what it is. You know, I think about Patty Breslin, who directs San Leandro 2050 and works with Tom in the garden. And, and Patty is talking about using this space to do water capture so that we can sort of save the water we have so we can grow more good stuff. I'm like, oh, you mean be responsible with the gifts that God has given us? These are the prophets. These are the priests. And now that I have, thank God, walked away from an attitude of suspicion, I can now pay attention to the people that have been talking about shalom, and maybe not to me, but now they're talking to me because I'm paying attention. <laughs> They've been talking about this stuff for 20 years. I'm new. I want to encourage us in a couple ways. Number one, some of us have felt disillusionment in the past years when it comes to being in what I would call Christian spaces. And in your disillusionment, you have found that there are other communities in your life that have felt more like church, a church that you want to be a part of. And I'm here to say that's because it probably is. It probably is. And you should probably be there more. You should probably hang out there more. The second is a point just like the first, because some of you, have really admired the work of people in your life. 
people that you might know of. Some of you have been listening to the stories and the voices of your ancestors and the ways that they have been giving witness to what justice and shalom and goodness looks like. And there may be a voice telling you, well, I don't know if those people are Christian. And I'm here to say, listen, listen carefully. Those voices, those stories, those people are probably showing you something about what the peaceable kingdom looks like. And it's good. It's great. Friends, this morning, I want to invite us into the possibility that the prophets and priests on the outside have probably already been speaking <laughs> and moving. And that there is no time like now, if you haven't done so already, to honor those voices, not just by saying thank you, but by paying attention even more. To honor those spaces by being in them even more. Knowing that sometimes it's okay if God isn't talking to us. But if God's talking about us, then perhaps if we are open and paying attention, we can see more of what God looks like. Let us pray.